स्मार्ट कास्ट लिसनिंग टू अंदुस्तान टाइम्स प्रोडक्शन ब्रॉट टू यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट हाई दिस इज मंजुला नारायण नेशनल बुक्स एडिटर हिंदुस्तान टाइम्स एंड दिस इज द बुक्स इन ऑथर्स पॉडकास्ट इट्स अ वीकली पॉडकास्ट वेर आई स्पीक टू ऑथर्स गॉट ए न्यू बुक आउट So hi so today we have uh, with us Devan Santola hi hi uh, good to be here yeah so this is uh, he's written this book change how to make big things happen so i found it like absolutely really very interesting and gripping in the sense that you know because the world is going through so much change and you often wonder why some ideas take off and others don't so if we can start with that you know Sure, absolutely. And the thing to keep in mind is that this is basically a brand new science. Um, and the reason I wrote the book is because what we've discovered in the last 15 years overturns pretty much everything we've thought for the last, you know, three quarters of a century. And mm-hmm. our ideas date back, you know, to the 1940s. And we have these ideas of, you know, opinion leaders, which are today called influencers. Um, and we've had this idea for a very long time that, you know, mm-hmm. ideas and behaviors spread virally. um that's led to viral marketing and lots of the strategies we use today to spread new products and also to initiate social change and mm. the discoveries that we've been able to sort of um find largely because we can construct experiments now and that's really the essence of doing science is being able to sort of study again and again and again what happens if you try to initiate some kind of social process and mm. the the experiments show that the the ideas that we had for a very long time really don't work um and the the big insight is that certain kinds of things um do spread from influencers and mm-hmm. uh we refer to those as simple contagions um and that's like celebrity gossip or a new teeth whitening cream new brand of coconut water but basically anything that's sort of easy or um okay. familiar mm-hmm. um and those kinds of things do spread virally just like the covid-19 virus they you know mm-hmm. all you need to do is sort of find out about them and when when we think about you know awareness um you know in marketing and awareness you know in in sort of consciousness raising and social movements that's typically how we talk about change but this is where those ideas fail is when we think about changing a behavior that's costly or difficult something adopting something that's unfamiliar um joining mm-hmm. a social movement that's potentially dangerous yes. that's not something that we do just because we know about it it's something we do because we're convinced because we believe that it's that's sort of the right thing to do because the people around us are doing it as mm-hmm. well um and the social expectations around us play this really important role in how we um change our behavior and what we ultimately deem to be acceptable and when social influences are playing that kind of role contagions are what i refer to as complex which means they spread through networks um in a way that's very different from the traditional viral story and influencers typically are late adopters in the process mm-hmm. um and these kinds of change processes typically take hold in what i refer to as sort of the outer edges or the sort of periphery of the social network which just means that you know most of us have only a modest number of social contacts and most of our contacts know each other and we sort of live in these social clusters um and what sort of sets the you know highly connected influencers apart is that they've got lots and lots of social contacts and that sort of puts them in the sort of center of the social network um and so you know simple contagions like a dieting plan can spread very easily from 
an influencer to lots of people. Hmm. Um, but when we think about um, disruptive products or bold political initiatives um, or movements for sustainability or race and gender equality, those things often aren't very you know popular in the mainstream at first. And so they tend to take hold among the sort of less connected people in the network periphery. And that's where they grow into what is essentially a critical mass. And the real science here is the science of tipping points, how they actually work and how we build the support necessary to change the social norms, you know, in societies. Okay. Okay. But, you know, this could go either way, right? I mean, it could be progressive or it could, you know, um, kind of result in a fascist sort of environment. So suppose you're a progressive and you want society to move in a certain way. I know this is a very sort of huge question, but uh, how would you ensure that it goes that way? Yeah, well, when you're initiating social change, um, by definition, you're sort of fighting against the status quo. Yes. Um, and uh, and what that means is that there's some social resistance to a new idea. And this is often the reason why, you know, highly connected people aren't the leaders, because highly connected people didn't become highly connected by ignoring their social context. Yeah. They became highly connected by paying a lot of attention to the people they're connected to. Um and what that means is the vast majority of people they know are, you know, supporting and, um, you know, maintaining the status quo. So they don't want to sort of go out against everybody. Whereas mm. um, if you're trying to initiate a real social change, really, it's amazing how effective neighborhoods are. Um, just, you know, neighbors and neighbors of neighbors and um, that kind of social reinforcement among people who know each other and have sort of friends in common can grow mm -hmm. into sort of a, a, a little incubator for a sort of a social change movement. And the key to sort of having a movement spread from one community to multiple communities, because, of course, that's the that's the sort of next step once you gain initial support is to get more and more communities on board. And those communities mm -hmm. may be different than the initial community that sort of initiated the movement. The trick is, what do the connections look like between those communities? And when we think about, you know, the spread of something viral, we say, well, we want, you know, connections in all directions, connections everywhere. We want to sort of get this, the word out there as fast as possible. But the lessons are the exact opposite for the spread of social change. And really mm -hmm. what we find is that it's these wide bridges, basically multiple reinforcing contacts from one community to another that carries the sort of the message of the initiative, but also social support for it that helps to convince people in, in a new community to take this seriously and to help coordinate with their neighbors and friends to adopt it. And then wide bridges across different communities become these sort of um, connections that allow a movement to grow. And it looks slow compared to you know the viral spread of COVID-19. But yes. when we think about the effectiveness of this strategy, what you're not trying to do is spread information. What you are trying to do is change social norms, right? And that's a very different kind of spreading process. And these kinds of sort of wide bridges become much more effective for growing what is essentially um, a change in the way that people think and the way that they act. Um, and what we've seen is that Every single social movement, and this goes back to the civil rights movement in the United States to um, more recently the Arab Spring um, uprisings mm -hmm. in uh, the Middle East, and then the Black Lives Matter movement, which first grew in the United States and then spread around the world, um, yes. spread through these same kinds of networks. If you think about the Black Lives Matter movement, um, I think it's a great example of how these networks operate because 
there were initially lots and lots of protests back in 2012 and 2013. And the term Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter and the hashtag was first used back in 2012. Um, yes. And the organization was founded in 2013. But there really wasn't a movement. Um, and it was in 2014 after Ferguson, um, mm-hmm. which is a very small town in Missouri, that was actually sort of the epicenter for the transformation of the, these protests, which had been, you know, um, in various locations. They'd been in New York City, they'd been in other cities, mm-hmm. but they hadn't ever sort of formed into a movement. And so mm-hmm. Ferguson, Missouri is an unlikely place for like, a nationwide movement to take hold. But what happened during that during that um, that protest was that the social networks online shifted into a, a a relationship among communities that weren't talking to each other before. And you had mm-hmm. black activists, you had um, you know general activist group, you had black youth, you had white liberals, you had the mainstream media, and all of them were having their sort of independent conversations about police violence, about problems in, um, you, you know, of, of citizens being uh, abused and civil rights violations. And all of a sudden, as a result of a dialogue that started between these communities, between activists and mainstream media, between li- white liberals and, and black youth, all of a sudden there were wide bridges in the communication mm-hmm. networks online. And this allowed for everyone to kind of develop a common language and a common way of talking and thinking about what this was, what was happening. And that transformed into a movement that then every single instance of uh, police violence or um, the murder of a black citizen in a a neighborhood, um, you know, uh, committed by the police or committed by, um, you know, anyone else sort of um, exercising that kind of authority. Um, One of the cases was a sort of citizen engaging in some sort of community watch who killed a black youth. Um, Mm. That these... Uh, these sort of common ideas of the fact that there's a general problem and the general problem can be described as violence against um, the sort of African-American citizens and also the sort of challenges of policing in black neighborhoods and the sort of need for, for reform in police departments, that that became sort of a very clear message that was coordinated across the nation and then became ultimately in 2020 coordinated around the world. But what allowed that to happen was the formation of these social networks with wide bridges across these different communities. And that's something that was happening kind of invisibly. And what we see is the result of it. <laughs> what we see is the sort of you know, massive uprising where people sort of coordinate on a clear and well-understood um, campaign of social change. And the power of that is, of course, you know, uh, noticeable when we see everyone in the U.S. Congress, at least the people you know, on, on one side of the fence, taking a knee to support you know, and, and acknowledge the death of George Floyd. That's, that, that's a unique event in history. Um, mm-hmm. And that only happens by virtue of, the, you know, of just a massive social movement emerging to acknowledge these kinds of problems. Hmm. I'm also wondering whether you know, it's because a majority of people feel that way, you know, feel that, you know, okay, it, it's time to change the status quo uh, and, you know, to, to make... Um, the, and believe that black lives matter but whereas in a in a perhaps in a more closed society where majoritarianism i'm talking about india here in, in you know in, in the indian context where majoritarianism has gained over say a you know a secular uh, a republic and you know we move towards a more sort of uh, a, a society that where where the majority is clearly in power mm-hmm. and you know, its agenda. So would 
wouldn't the same logic apply? I mean, wouldn't it depend on the kind of society, you know, that exists? Yeah, well, fundamentally, I mean, the story underneath any society is a story of who talks to whom. It's just, I mean, everyone lives in households and communities. Um, Everyone in the communities talks to each other. And, you know, one of the big questions is, you know, who are the conversations um, among, who's talking to each other, um, and how are those conversations really influencing the kinds of decisions that we make uh, collectively or, you know, at a governmental level? Um, Mm. And one of the ways of thinking about this is in terms of tipping points, is, you know, when a, a movement or an idea gains enough traction, then what you find is it actually becomes, you know, compelling on its own because so many other people, just by the virtue of the fact that so many other people are sort of, you know, um, thinking this way and talking this way and acting this way, it becomes something that becomes widely accepted. And and this really goes, you know, ob- well, obviously we can talk about this in fairly politicized contexts, um, but it, 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 you know, it generalizes to things like, you know, um, the acceptance of solar solar power, you know, whether or not you put solar panels on your house is something that is in it to a surprising degree, you know, governed by these sort of social tipping points rather than, you know, financial incentives. Um, Mm. And what we tend to see, uh, and this is something that I've studied extensively in trying to kind of isolate and identify what a tipping point really is and Mm. how it's triggered. Because when we talk about tipping points, um, there's a kind of casual language when we say, well, you know, obviously something happened with you know with with me too and obviously something happened with black lives matter where you know in 2013 there wasn't a movement there were still large numbers of you know um, black youth being being killed um Mm -hmm. but there wasn't you know a public consciousness and the and the protest that did happen um even right before ferguson the month before um uh, Eric Gardner was was killed by a police officer, in fact, choked to death by a police officer. And there was a video of it, and the video was posted online. And there were some small po- protests, but the vast majority of Americans um, uh, were, you know, were interviewed and reported that they um, didn't support the protests and believed that there probably wasn't a problem of, of police violence in, in Black neighborhoods. Um, just six years later, after you know, the death of George Floyd in a very similar way with a similar kind of video posted online, all of a sudden, almost 80% of Americans said that they thought that the protests were justified and that they do believe that there was a problem of police violence in black neighborhoods. So that's a, that's a remarkable change in public consciousness in just six years. Um, Mm. And so, and what makes that change in public consciousness happen isn't that, you know, the majority, you know, believes it. The majority comes to believe it once the tipping point is triggered. And the question, the really core question is, how did that tipping point get triggered? How did we go from the, you know, the majority thinking this, this isn't a a valid movement, the majority supporting the movement in such a short period of time? Um, And that's really the, the question of how, you know, uh, communities that don't feel like they have much political power, that don't feel like they have much voice in you know mainstream government, that they're suffering those kinds of abuses, all of a sudden coordinate with each other and are able to sort of tip the public consciousness in a way that's surprising. I don't think in twenty, you know, in twenty twelve or twenty thirteen, anyone would have predicted that there was that there would be this kind of movement and that you know um, there would be federal legislation <laughs> trying to sort of address the problem of police violence in black communities. 
Um, and so this is something that, you know, it's a, it's a broader story. It's a, not just a story about Black Lives Matter. It's a story about social change. It's a story about how this works. And we see a similar story in the, the growth of the Arab Spring uprisings. You see lots mm-hmm. of just regular citizens engaged in their daily life um, taking to the streets in a coordinated way and using the networks over social media. And it wasn't, you know, high status influencers who mobilized change. It was mm-hmm. just regular folks who coordinated with each other and then, you know, basically took over the country and, you know, um, ousted their, you know, despotic um, uh, yeah, dictator. Yeah, uh, yeah, Jose Mubarak. And, um, and you know, we've seen this uh, lots of times. Sometimes it's more violent, like it was with Arab Spring, and sometimes it's less violent, like it was with Black Lives Matter. And Black Lives Matter was, you know, um, didn't engage in, you know, attacking the police. It didn't engage in any of those sorts of activities. It was really a nonviolent movement that was nevertheless incredibly effective. And I think it stands as a kind of a testament to the power of the, you know, coordination of lots of different communities that aren't initially coordinating, but once they can start to coordinate, their voice becomes recognized. And the really surprising thing, and this is where the science becomes very interesting, is once we can study this, you know, in communities and sort of test out different um, um, sort of tipping point experiments, we find mm-hmm. that there's a tipping point of around 25%, which is surprisingly low. Yeah. Um, but what winds up happening is that when 25% of the population is sort of coordinating on a really clear message um that message uh basically starts to take hold among other people and what's going on is the people who are coordinating with each other then you know other people have to coordinate with them too and they start to sort of change the way that the people are thinking that was damon centola talking about his book change how to make big things happen This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.